The language in this episode is pretty salty. If you're listening on speakers near coworkers or your kids are around, you might want to consider listening to this later or put some headphones on. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. In this special edition of Behavioral Grooves, we sat down with Barry Ritholtz, investment maven from Wall Street, leader of the podcast Masters in Business, a regular contributor to Bloomberg TV, CNBC, The Street, as well as author whose pieces have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and his blog, The Big Picture. To say that our conversation with Barry was unconventional is, well, an understatement. Very much so. We talked equally as much about the application of behavioral science in his investment firm as we did about Steely Dan, science researchers, great investors throughout history, and personal anecdotes, all of which kept this an entertaining, but very, very long. So in this episode, Kurt and I are grooving as we go through the interview. In other words, Kurt and I are going to be talking about the concepts that Barry brings up as interludes to our live discussion with Barry. Before we even started, Barry was providing us insights in both his personal journey and his take on one of the most important decision-making biases of behavioral science, the survivorship bias. Barry lets us know right off the bat that he is not your average Wall Street investment firm guy. Is kidding themselves. And my then partners hated when I would go on TV and say, well, you know, it's good to be good. It's much better to be lucky. Yeah. And they used to make him crazy. And it was, I'm just telling the truth. So I spent most of my career on the outside of the mainstream of finance. We could start right here. So let's start with Barry's story. He brought us up to speed on common expectations of children growing up in Jewish households and laid out how he navigated his way through college. Barry is one of those rare people who is both self-aware and deeply self-confident. He recognized that his curiosities were valuable resources and combined them with observations he was making about other people in his work environment, primarily at the trading desk as a junior trader. Here's how he frames his early years. In behavioral science and applying that, I mean, you talked so about that. I, I began as a trader. So, come out of college not knowing what the hell I want to do. Yeah. If you're a college graduate and you grow up in a Jewish household and you don't know what you do, the default is law school. So you just have to go. If you show an aptitude to business, it's business. If you took organic chem, it's med school. I'm fascinated by a lot of things. And so I'm very happy to embrace anything that I'm curious about. So law school was absolutely amazing because law school is, I think, in many ways, a superior education to business school. Because business school teaches you a, a, a school of thought. Law school teaches you how to think. Yeah. Two very, very different approaches. I was really fascinated by the process of what different people were doing on the desk. And the person on my left would be making a ton of money. And the person on my right is getting killed. And then next week, that switches. And rather than saying, rather than looking at the specifics, why were you trading what you were trading? How did that work out? I was more fascinated by, they appear to be doing very similar things. What's the difference? His ability to keenly notice problems with systems, analysis, and behaviors is remarkable. In this way, he is like a behavioral scientist, looking for the underlying motives and reasons. 
He noted the troubles that we have with the way the average U.S. citizen arrives at their perspectives were all based on the way that the media covers this. I'm a giant consumer of media, but very selectively, because okay. I think a lot of media is, is not very good. It, it, it's Sturgeon's Law. You know, um, Ted Sturgeon was a science fiction writer in the okay. 40s, 50s, and 60s. Someone asked him, why is so much science fiction crap? And his response was, 90% of everything is crap. Don't hold science fiction to a higher standard. Look around. Everything is shit. As the media spin stories that sell advertising, they sometimes miss the mark on the real depth and impact of a story, sometimes overstating it, sometimes understating it. Skepticism is central to Barry's insights into the market. He notes that many heuristics we use, even in the business world, are not well-founded in data. And the disconnect is, in part, what caused him to embrace behavioral sciences. The heuristics, the rules of thumb. Hey, when the 50 crosses the 200, you want a leg in it. That stuff, I, every time I would get it, the, the math education I had would say, well, can we see the, that laid out and do a simple regression? And how often is that true? And it turns out, when you check it out, it's bullshit. There's no, no truth to it whatsoever. Or it's... It's practically indistinguishable from noise, right? Right, yeah. from randomness. So the the Schwager book, um, Market Way, and he subsequently did three or four other books. The Schwager book is so good because very early read of, of other aspects beyond the mechanics of trading. And that sent me down the rabbit hole. And I um, what really sent me down the rabbit hole, that sent me looking for further into exploration. Hey, all the trading books, all the stuff um, on technical analysis and fundamentals, and they all just, you know, the six blind men describing the elephant. Mm. It wasn't until I found a book called um, How We Know It Isn't So by uh, Tom Gilovich, who's a psychology professor up at Cornell, that that's really where I went down the rabbit hole of behavioral finance. And anything I could find related to that, I just devoured. And this is early. Mid-90s. Yeah. I think that book is 91 or 92 when I found it less than five years after it came out. And so suddenly, oh my God, people have different motivations and they're wholly unaware of these motivations. Ego drives things. Selective perception drives things. Cognitive dissonance prevents us from changing our mind. And you start working your way down these things. By the way, in the 90s, a lot of these things weren't even called that. They were right. very, right. you know, we now have a, a very specific vocabulary within behavioral finance that we know about anchoring and attribution bias. And, and yesterday um, we saw Bob Cialdini speak. I was So Barry talked about a number of really interesting things in that last section. Uh, particularly for me, he talked about how ego drives things and how ego is one of the main components as people were thinking about their investments and what they were doing. And he also talked about cognitive dissonance and how cognitive dissonance prevents us from changing our mind. And I think that is so 
insightful in this situation. Yeah, like like it's easier for us to just avoid actually confronting the data or the truth or the facts than it is to actually deal with it when they when when those facts uh, don't agree with us, right? Don't agree with what we believe, what we or believe, what we've yeah. done in the past, all of those other factors. So, yeah. what did you take out of that section, Tim? Uh, well, I'm talking about Mamasan and Taleb and Gilovich. Uh, Gilovich is a, a big hero of mine. The work that he did, especially with Danny Kahneman. Uh, the work on intuitive judgment and uh, biases and heuristics is, you know, kind of world famous. And then maybe one of the most fun studies that he did was the hot hand study. Yeah. And the same thing is what Barry was applying that to in investment is sometimes we go with those people who have had winning streaks, winning streaks, winning streaks. But, you know, in reality, there's that re- regression to the mean. And that is, you know, the the hot hand isn't really the ones who are going to be hot hand for next year. Right. So. And we but we love the story. We love the story. We absolutely love the story. And and Barry then t- went on to talk about how to help people with these biases, especially the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> So what was fascinating, so I'm reading more and more behavioral stuff and I'm working with brokers. Yeah. Uh, this is the sell side and I frequently, so we would have the Monday morning meeting, the whole all hands on deck meeting, here's what the bond desk said, here's what the fundamental analyst said, Barry would come out and do his shtick and I would always get questions from brokers saying, you know, I'm buying all this good stuff, I can't figure out why I'm stinking the job. My clients are complaining. So we would take their portfolios, run it through Excel, and I would have to explain to them, look, you have, you know, you have ABC, it's up 80%, that's great, and you have XYZ, and that's up 30%, but those are your like ninth and 14th biggest holdings. Your first holding has done nothing, that's a third of your portfolio. Your second and third holdings are both down 10%. When you showed them the numbers, they, and it was so clear that it was just pure selective retention. They remember the winners and the losers just disappeared. Their clients remember the losers. Dunning-Kruger was another giant flash. So not only do you not, are you not good, but you are wholly unaware of how not Not good good you you are. So what I liked about that conversation that Barry had is he brought up Dunning-Kruger and he really showcased it with the Uh, story about the brokers and how they could not realize why their clients were mad with them, uh, which really highlights that Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah, yeah. And and just remind uh, listeners to what the Dunning-Kruger effect is. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is that people with low ability have this illusion that their ability is much greater than it is. And so they mistakenly assess their cognitive performance Uh, to be better than what it is. People with higher ability or higher cognitive abilities actually are are much better at assessing what they do and don't know. Whereas people with lesser ability kind of assume they know a lot more than they do. Yeah, sort of like the old rune, uh, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Right, that's exactly it. And so I think what Barry highlights here is that that comes into play even with with people who are so-called experts, at least in areas where uh, we think they're experts and they may not be as expert as we they think. They really aren't the, the experts that we think they are. Yeah. Uh, but they think they are. They, <laughs> they think, think, they think they they're think the experts. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the trouble. Yeah, and so I thought that was really interesting. 
And then Barry talks about when he started his firm and he wanted to change things up. And he uses a story about non-farm payroll to highlight this, how firms often, too often, don't take the larger picture into perspective and they get stuck focusing in on the wrong measures. First, I very much was unhappy with the way various media outlets would assign somebody to cover economics. The basic economic data, you get a kid out of college who knows nothing, here, put the new guy on. So they would write about non-farm payrolls and they would write about the existing home sales and they didn't understand the context. They didn't understand. So you'd get this breathless non-farm payroll report. Okay. And I would say, you understand how much noise is non-farm payroll we have a hundred, well, I'll use today's data, but it applies whenever. There are 157 million people employed in the United States. Each month, someone between a million and two million leave their jobs. Yep. Not coincidentally, each month, somewhere between a million and two million start a new job or a different job, or they enter the workforce. The net difference between that plus and minus is what's reported. Now, if you're plus or minus 100,000, or 500,000 out of $160 million, the technical term for what that difference is, is fucking zero, it's nothing. <laughs> it's an irrelevant, plus you, you see the percentage, the, the subsequent um, adjustments and then rebenchmarks. So what does that mean? I, I'm not suggesting that non-farm payrolls number is meaningless, but I'm what's suggesting is that you look at the long-term trends. Month over month, the changes right. are... Right. You look at the long-term trend and you give it a, a, a range where it could be plus or minus, and that's all that matters. Now, when that trend collapse rolls over and starts to die, pay attention. And conversely, when it bottoms and starts to get better, that matters. But the 67 months in between are meaningless bullshit. It's classic recency effect. Yeah. It's whatever... So here's how this gets... So I write this and I say, I don't really care about what the non-farm payroll is, except when we're in a change of trends and when the consensus is starting to get it so consistently wrong, they're not acknowledging what's taking place. Okay, so Kurt, the, uh, I love how Barry talks about recency and, and the, the troubles that we have with that. But I think even more than just recently, we've got a bit of Occam's razor going on here. So we've, we've got this, this very large data set that we're looking at just this tiny, tiny little bit of it, right? We're just shaving off. When we look at non-farm payroll, we're looking at it just a shaving of what the total picture is. And, you know, you think non-farm payroll is millions of people entering and exiting the workforce every month, millions and yet we get a report that says, well, there's a net gain of 110,000 or there's a net gain of 120,000 or a net gain of 105,000. And so we start thinking, we process these numbers as being a big difference between 105,000 and 120,000, even though there's still tiny percentages of the total number of people who are entering and exiting the workforce on a monthly basis. Right. It's that classic component where we focus in on this minutiae without taking in the big picture of things. Right. We're lacking we're lacking perspective. And yet, you know, part of this is the media, because this is what gets reported to us over and over again as we continue to draw our focus to this minutia. 
and, and then we lack the, the big the big picture story. How about how about right. you? Well, it, it, to that point, he talks about the noise that's in the non-farm payroll, mm-hmm. right? And and that's what we're talking about here is this these ups and downs with this component going in and the the changes that happen to that. A lot of that is noise. A lot of that is just natural happenings, right? He yeah. goes into to talking about how the various different factors play into this and what goes in. Is it, you know, time of year, various different pieces of all of those factors. And a lot of it is noise. And we we have to be able to take the signal from the noise and understand what's the long-term trend. Now, if there's a long-term trend in this, that's important. And I think that goes beyond even finance and the non-farm payroll. Absolutely. It goes into many things in our life that we, we look at. We get so focused in on this most recent piece of information, this most, uh, you know, this minutia part. In a, a lot of the work I do with, with incentives, we have people who, you know, their incentive payroll, their, their I'm sorry, their variable payroll is 15% or 20% of their, of, total their, of their total payroll. Yeah, which is generous. They're they're making good money. This, these are well-paid individuals. They're well-paid individuals. But they're so focused in on 20% of that 20% right. because of this one measure that they're not really agreeing with or they don't like the goal that they have in this certain part. When if they take a big picture look and going, look, 80% is my base pay. Now 20% is variable pay and 20% of that 20% is what I'm really getting all worked up about and spending all this mental energy and angst and all of this other factors that go into it. And, and that happens, I think, very much because we tend to, as humans, focus in on those smaller things that are vivid and recent and we feel somehow we should be able to respond to or have control over. Well, and this built into the next section where Barry started to talk about the financial crisis and and the housing uh, crisis um, and, and some of the things that led us to focus on the narrative and to focus on the story, uh, even when the data didn't add up, because we were focused on these tiny little things and not really on the overall trends. Right. So he was bringing in this component, or he brings in this component of looking at the narrative. So let's hear him talk about it. So a lot of this comes back to another classic behavioral issue, which is narrative. We love comforting narratives. We want a story. Hey, don't bother me with math and data. Tell me a story. So the story that, the oh, look, uh, well-intentioned but misbegotten uh, legislators foisted this program on you and it's bad. Yes. Okay, so that approach turns out to be a comforting narrative for some people, but the counterfactual proves that the narrative is false. You can do the exact same thing with the market. But the humans... Yes. And Mike hates when I say the phrase, the humans. But people, (laughs) the humans love a great story. Listen, we've only had pen and paper for what? 8,000 years? Yeah. You got a million years of of, um, adaptive uh, evolutionary biology saying if you could tell a compelling story, people will remember it. Maybe that little subgroup will survive because they know... Hey, don't go over here, and when, when the moon is over here, you could find stuff there, and whatever. 
the the storytelling um, narratives are so compelling because they served a purpose for a long time. So we find ourselves trying to take dry, boring, tedious market data and making it interesting, factual based, admitting what we don't know, but telling a story that people will like. So I wrote a piece um, that was, I'll send it to you. It's so snide and sarcastic, I really love it. <laughs> we're, we're in. Which was, which was uh, everybody knew the, the correction was coming after. Of course. <laughs> and so it was just a list of, we, we interrupt this market correction uh, for some uh, hindsight bias. Brought to you by hindsight bias. And, exactly. And basically explaining all the stuff that people are saying and why all of this was true six months and a year and two years ago. Okay, so Barry tees up this idea about how important narrative is. And it's be- and from my perspective, it's an evolutionary story. Our brains have been telling stories and using the spoken word for a lot longer than the written word has been going on. Hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, Maybe ri- not millions. Yeah, but written word might only thousand. be 8,000 years old. Right, right. Yeah, and, 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 and so stories are really important. Yeah, stories are powerful. Deeply. They capture our imagination. They capture the way we think much more than data and facts and boring figures. Yeah. They are these things that build into our imagination and are vivid and we really take hold of them and they, they influence us in ways that data and facts often don't. And Barry lays this out really nicely, um, talking about how that narrative or the stories can overpower the facts and metrics that are used. Yeah, he's like the, you know, so irritated with Wall Street. He even goes so far as to say that Wall Street has forsaken the truth when it comes to relying (laughs) on data. Yeah, they've forsaken the truth in his mind for a while now. Yeah, so he gave two... Uh, examples of models or people to pay attention to who are relying on data uh, that that he that he points out. The first is the Fama French model. It's a three-factor model that accounts for something like 90% of all predictive portfolios uh, today. So uh, the three factors are uh, paying attention to market risk, which can be quantified. Uh, The second is that the small companies tend to outperform big companies. Uh, And the last is uh, paying attention to this high book-to-market value uh, compared to low book-to-market value. Which is basically... Looking at profit, right? Looking at companies need to be profitable. Don't expect them to become profitable in the future. Make sure they're profitable now. Now, right? And again, it's a it's an objective measure, right? Uh, and then the, he also talked about uh, he mentions Ray. And he's talking about Ray Dalio uh, in our conversation. And Ray Dalio is you know uh, investor extraordinaire and a tremendous author. Yeah, he wrote Principles uh, and is one of the wealthiest people in the world and has a firm. The, the Bridgewater Group. Bridgewater Group. Yeah. So really uh, influential person in the finance world, and I think uh, aligns a lot with what Barry is talking about here. Yeah. So let's listen to what Barry has to say about that. I've, I've been saying that Wall Street has abandoned the truth as a market niche yeah. for a long time, and we've kind of moved into that space 15 years ago. I gravitate to guys like Ray because I love... Their philosophy, I love what he says. Now, they're pretty, what he talks about is radical transparency is with each other. Right. Um, But yeah, and he also says 
the first job of all investors is understanding reality. If you don't understand reality, you're doomed. Mm. You could get lucky for a while. You could be right, you know, here or there. But until you grasp reality, you cannot be a decent investor. And I find that, and this goes back to the first days on the trading desk, the people who had no grasp on reality didn't necessarily make money. For five minutes or ten minutes, they could make money, and that, yeah, that you might get lucky. You get the oh, or you could just catch a trend and momentum. Yeah. Listen, uh, of all the formal factors that Fama French have identified, momentum is clearly uh, a, a significant factor. So, if you were a trend trader or a, a momentum, you made a ton of money until the momentum died out. And some of these guys were nimble enough that they could get out of the way when it rolled over. So. So they had, uh, some, they found some small truth, even if their large truth wasn't right. And as long as they operated within those parameters, they're perfectly fine. Then our conversation turned to financial literacy and how financial literacy is really fleeting. What we benefit from is rules-based portfolios that offset the human and emotional reactions of recency and availability and vividness. Let's listen. That is start early and often and constantly you know, remind people, reinvigorate, revisit it. You can't just say it. You have to continually um, beat on that. Um, we want people to focus on planning on goals, not on how the stock market, stock market does on any given Wednesday. Who cares? Or even any given quarter. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to look. So today is 2018. No one is looking back who's, who's about to retire and said, you know, in 1987... Thank goodness I avoided that crash. It, it almost doesn't, it really doesn't matter. If you rode the crash out, it's irrelevant. Yeah. So you have to, and, and when you train people and when you educate people before their clients, forget before they have money at risk, hey, crashes happen, recessions happen, bear markets happen. It is totally cyclical. If you are unprepared to deal with a 20 to 30 to 40 to 50% drawdown, then you can never be exposed to equities. Constant, constant um, awareness of the failure of financial literacy and the need to just redo that all the time. The better way to apply it is to use a simple rules-based portfolio that when that trend breaks, you move into bonds. And at a certain point, based on rules, you get back in. But you don't put everybody's money into it. You put a small slug of money into that portfolio. Now, let me tell you what good behavior is, because we keep discovering all sorts of bad behavior. Good behavior (laughs) means not logging into your account. We continued talking about biases and how a good investor or an investment firm tries to overcome those biases and remove emotion from those decisions. Let's listen. You know, in the United States, not only is there a home country bias, but there's a regional bias. If you're in Texas, you tend to have energy stocks. If you're in California, you have a disproportionate number of technology stocks. Go to uh, the Northeast, a lot of brokerage and bank stocks. The industrial heartland, it's a lot of manufacturing companies. And the ag states have a lot of agriculture. It's because people are familiar with it and it's... the unknown is scary. The unknown represents a threat. Yeah. And so we stick with what is comfortable and friendly. And it's, it's, you're, you're taking like the amygdala out of people's decision making, that, that immediate fear response kind of component. And you're saying- System let's, one. Yeah, it's system one. Let's, let's actually use our system two thinking here. Let's put some not, rules in place. Let's put some rules in place. Let's not be reactive to that immediate, you know, 
as you said, take the news out of it, right? Get you have to acknowledge it. People live in the here and now. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. Right. But I think the most important thing we do with clients is getting them to pull themselves out of the evolutionary panic mode mm -hmm. and get back into the long-term thoughtful cognitive mode, which is planning decade by decade as opposed to reacting minute by minute. And that is harder to do than people realize. You, yeah. you exist in the here and now. I, met, I don't know if I mentioned this um, yesterday or was the other discussion, the other panel, there is no past and there is no future. There is just today. Yeah. All right? And even today is a faulty construct in your brain. Um, I could show you a crazy um, little thing where uh, you try and figure out what your focus is, how, how big it is. And it turns out that the human focus is 3%. And that you, what you think of as your peripheral vision is just oh, yeah. a, a very bad model. Now, let's talk about the past. The past is, studies have shown the human memory system is terribly unreliable. Oh, yeah. The first time you recall event, you get a pretty clean version of, of that. And then the subsequent recall of that event is not the event. It's, it's your recall. prior recall of the event. So um, there's a really goofy movie, Multiplicity, yeah. where they clone uh, uh, Michael Keaton. <laughs> and by the time the fourth, fifth copy, like like a Xerox they describe, it's it's not quite perfect relative <laughs> to the first one. Your memories are... T so our recollections are filled with selective retention, like the brokers who can remember the winners but not the losers. Yeah. So it's between the selective retention and the drive of the ego and the ability to try and maintain a consistent self-image, that's a horrible, horrible set of, uh, of things. Beyond that, so that's the past. The past is completely fabricated and highly misleading. The future is our best guess about what might happen out of many probabilities. And as we've seen over time, our ability to forecast the future is horrific. So Barry talked about a lot of really cool things in that last section. Yeah. One that I wanted to to dig into a little bit was he, he mentioned that the unknown is scary. And that was his component about why sometimes we have these regional biases in the stocks we pick. Because we're more familiar with those uh, companies and industries that are in the region that we're in, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, this familiarity thing uh, strikes me actually on two levels. The first is uh, that uh, there was a survey done that revealed that that people who live like more than a thousand or fifteen hundred miles away from the border of mm -hmm. the country are more afraid of immigrants than the people who actually live at the border because because <laughs> they're not seeing immigrants all the time. Because the unknown, it's unknown it's and the unknown, unknown is scary. Exactly. Uh, and the other thing is that context matters. Oh my gosh. Right? I mean, oh my gosh, we live in this world where if I grow up uh, and and live every day, uh, this reminds me of dis our discussion with Kuhn Smets, yeah. um, that if we're if I'm growing up and living in a world of agriculture and I see, I see farms Every time I, I, I go out, I see I see farm vehicles, uh, I see grain bins, things like that. I'm going to be more likely to choose.
owns stocks that are in farm companies because it's familiar. Right. That's the the context that I'm in. It's the availability heuristic, right? So when you come and you think about it, that's what comes to mind. And then the recency of it then as well. Recency of it because you just say, hey, I was driving down the road, I saw a tractor. Or I drive in New York and wow, there's all these banks or, you know, these technology (laughs) companies in in In, in, California. Silicon Valley, exactly. Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting. Another interesting part that he brings up and I think is really insightful is pulling away from the evolutionary panic mode. Oh, yes. That is what he's trying to get his clients to do. A, I just love the, you know, evolutionary panic mode, right? Something happens and I got to respond right away. Um, And we're wired for that. And it's the amygdala, right? That fight, the, the flight or fear uh, all that system one stuff, right? right? And and all of those components, and really put some rules in place. Have some elements that pull you out of that and get you back into system two thinking, thinking through things logically. And I think this goes for investing, but gosh, think about all the other areas of our life that we should probably be pulling ourselves out of the evolutionary panic mode. Uh, Constantly, right? (laughs) Uh, And you said it really well, Kurt, about uh, removing the amygdala from the the decision. I think we need an amygdala extraction tool of some kind. Uh, And and for people, the amygdala is a part of the brain that uh, controls that that fear, flight, fight component and is one of the main emotions, a lot of the emotions. Okay. But what about memory? Barry brought up memory too. He brought up memory and I, I love the component of memory. I do want to just do a thing. Memory really isn't as far as the research that I've seen on this memory really isn't this uh, memory of a recall of a memory of a recall of a memory of a recall of a memory. Right, right. It's more complex than that. It's more complex. It is this uh, complex construction each time. So every time we have a memory, it's a reconstruction of the event. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, Barry's, I think, push there was that memory is fungible, that it can, it can change or it can be wrong. And it does. And, and yeah. that is very, very true. And, and the thing is, is it can be wrong the very first time. It doesn't have to be this 10th <laughs> iteration of the memory, the memory that we have of what we had to, for breakfast yesterday can be wrong the first time we try to remember it because it's this reconstruction that goes through the various synapses within our brain and various different pieces. So we have to be very concerned when uh, we use memory as this component to base a lot of our decisions on. We can't yeah. get away from it. No, right? We live in the here and now. We, we base the here and now off of what we understand from the past and the lessons we got from the past and the memory of those things. But we also have to make sure that we are looking at things um, realistically and understand that our memory may be fallible. Which is where we get back to data, relying on data and not just our personal memories. Right. And and I think it was uh, Caroline Webb who talked about, or was it Annie Duke? You're gonna, my memory is, is, <laughs> is not good here, right? We're looking at this. I'm trying to figure out who said it, but was talking about when you make a decision, it was Annie Duke. When you make a decision, write it down and then write down 
why you made that decision. So when you go back and look at the results, you don't do this thing of saying, oh yeah, I always expected that result to happen. No, you actually said, here's the decision, here's what, and here's the output that I think. Doing those kind of components are really helpful. So that leads us to one of my favorite topics, Music. Yes. And we had a great conversation, a lengthy conversation. A very lengthy (laughs) conversation on music, might I add. Yeah. Well, we were in New York, and so we talked about Steely Dan because they were doing their Five Nights at the Beacon. Um, And then we also talked about... The Great American Rock Band. The Great American, the greatest American rock band. If you had to pick the greatest American rock band or singer, very, very interesting. Which was very fun. Uh, So what we've done is taken some excerpts from that and hope you enjoy that. Completely. Okay, let's, uh, we always like to close with a little bit of discussion about music. Just went to Steely Dan last night. And when I teed that up yesterday, you said you were going to Steely Dan. How was the show? So first, I go every year. They do a residency at the Beacon for 12 nights. Okay. And what they do is some nights they play the greatest hits. I've seen that a couple of times. But if you're a hardcore Dan fan, different nights they'll play a different album. And literally they start, play the whole album through. Um, and then they'll do a bunch of different songs. So I went to Countdown to Ecstasy yesterday, um, which the crazy thing is Boda Vistava is usually like an encore song. Right. To start a show with Bodhisattva. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it just yeah, was so... The first song on the record. First song. It's like, so, wow. They talk about coming out of the gate. Yeah. And also My Old School is on the other side of the album. Albums, by the way, were... What existed before and then they just did a run of just insanely great stuff everything from Kid Charlemagne to Gold Teeth to Asia to Peg to and and it was just like one after another after another go to Setlist FM and oh, yeah, usually yeah, it takes a couple of days you'll see the full playlist and um and then they leave, and the lights don't come up, and I say to my wife, um, <laughs> I go, you know uh, you know what's coming next, right? And she's like, no. They're going to come out and do Reeling in the Years. That's how you end the show. <laughs> and so, so not only was, was the show astonishing, um, I mentioned I worked in a, a record store in yeah. college. Yeah. In a oh, stereo store. <clears throat> when the Nightfly came out, oh, God. you yeah, could was... not walk into that was Dan uh, Fagan's first, Donald Fagan's yeah. first yeah. Uh, solo. You could not walk into any high-end audio store and not hear that. It was it was, it was one. It of, was recorded so cleanly. It was one of the first digital yeah. albums. Okay. I want to say 1980, something like that. 81, 82. I think 82. I was in college. I was in college through 84. So. It was and it, it, it was astonishing. Last week, uh, and and so we were going to go with another on another night again with another couple. We usually go to one or two. I think one year I went to three. Last year I saw the Royal Scam. The year before that I saw them do uh, a, uh, Asia, which was pretty amazing. I saw them do get like I pretty much. What a weird. Other I than imagine seeing Asia live just start to just that. astonishing. Uh, I enjoy. I did a post, <laughs> so weird. Writing in public is yep. always kind of fun, 
because you could write something that's genuinely interesting and people will respond. So I want to say it was like 04, or 03, or 05, or something like that. I'm going to say 04. Um, who is the greatest American rock and roll band? Now, there are two caveats to that. American means it's not the Beatles, it's not the Stones, it's not the Who. So it's they not can't have originated anywhere right. other it's than the Right, it's an American band, okay. and it really has to be a band. So that means it's not Bruce Springsteen. Okay. Because that's effectively... He's not You can say it's Springsteen and the E Street Band, but come on, let's be honest. It's, it's Bruce. Um, yeah. So... Those parameters, awkward as they may be, really limit your choices. And to make matters worse, I said, and I want to judge it on three categories. This is where like over-analytical minds uh, come home to roost. So the band's influence, okay, the quality of their catalog, and their live performances. And their live performances. So I did all three. And uh, Steely Dan ended up pretty much being the winner they were hugely influential. Okay. Yeah. Their catalog is uh, is insane, and the Eagles live performance. Eagles, Eagles so the Eagles made the list. The problem with the Eagles is before Joe Walsh joined, they were really boring live. Oh, I've okay. seen them a yeah. couple of times. Yeah. Joe Walsh helped a lot, but yeah, so yeah. instead of having five guys just standing and strumming, now you have four guys and another one running around. One running around. So, so the that's the drummer, which is never makes it right. a good show. Always, Jeez. always a challenge. And then I, you know, Van Halen was on the list. Oh. Um, again, uh, not a, a, a deep catalog. First couple albums were great, but certainly not, you know, that influential. R.E.M. That's where made the right. list. Another, another good one. Um, the Doors made the list. Had, had Jim Morrison survived, maybe yeah. they might have had a bigger... Uh, catalog. There were a handful of us. The uh, I'm not a giant deadhead, so yeah. but Grateful Dead legitimately has to be yeah, on the yeah. list. Talking Heads uh, absolutely have to be on the list. Although they're such a niche, I'm a giant T Heads fan. Yeah, but they're such. I'm going to go see Elvis Costello in Connecticut next month. Oh, that'll be that should be a blast. You know, that's not American. Um, no, no. but Talking Heads clearly legitimate American band. So those parameters. Yeah. You know, it's easy if you just say, hey, what's the greatest of all time? It's too open. The parameters force you yeah, yeah, to think. And if, I'll, say, I'll find that link. We hope you enjoyed this different style of behavioral grooves. Way different. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an interesting conversation that we had. It went super long and we bounced all over the place. It was great. Yeah. It was fun. I just hope that this new style, this new format, I don't know if it's something that we're going to repeat or not, but let us know. Let us know if you liked it. Give us a review. Um, share with a friend. Share it with a friend. And as always, keep, keep on, on grooving. grooving.